From the Earth to the Moon, Jules Verne, Chapter 25, Final Details. It was the 22nd of November. The departure was to take place in 10 days. One operation alone remained to be accomplished to bring all to a happy termination, an operation delicate and perilous, requiring infinite precautions, and against the success of which Captain Nicholl had laid his third bet. It was, in fact, nothing less than the loading of the Columbiad and the introduction into it of 400,000 pounds of gun cotton. Nicholl had thought, not perhaps without reason, that the handling of such formidable quantities of peroxyle would in all probability involve a grave catastrophe, and at any rate that this immense mass of eminently inflammable material would inevitably ignite when submitted to the pressure of the projectile. There were indeed dangers accruing as before from the carelessness of the Americans, but Barbicane had set his heart on success and took all possible precautions. In the first place, he was very careful as to the transportation of the gun cotton to Stones Hill. He had it conveyed in small quantities, carefully packed in sealed cases. These were brought by rail from Tampa Town to the camp and from thence were taken to the Columbiad by barefooted workmen who deposited them in their places by means of cranes placed at the orifice of the cannon. No steam engine was permitted to work, and every fire was extinguished within two miles of the works. Even in November they feared to work by day, lest the sun's rays acting on the gun cotton might lead to unhappy results. This led to their working at night, by light produced by a vacuum by means of Ruhmkorff's apparatus, which threw an artificial brightness into the depths of the Columbiad. There the cartridges were arranged with the utmost regularity, connected by a metallic thread, destined to communicate to them all simultaneously the electric spark, by which means this mass of gun cotton was eventually to be ignited. By the 28th of November, 800 cartridges had been placed in the bottom of the Columbiad. So far, the operation had been successful. But what confusion, what anxieties, what struggles were undergone by President Barbicane? In vain had he refused admission to Stones Hill. Every day, the inquisitive neighbors scaled the palisades, some even carrying their imprudence to the point of smoking, while surrounded by bales of gun cotton. Barbicane was in a perpetual state of alarm. J.T. Maston seconded him to the best of his ability by giving vigorous chase to the intruders and carefully picking up the still-lighted cigar ends which the Yankees threw about. A somewhat difficult task, seeing that more than 300,000 persons were gathered round the enclosure. Michel Ardan had volunteered to superintend the transport of the cartridges to the mouth of the Columbiad, but the president, having surprised him with an enormous cigar in his mouth, while he was hunting out the rash spectators to whom he himself offered so dangerous an example, saw that he could not trust this fearless smoker, and was therefore obliged to mount a special guard over him. At last, Providence being propitious, this wonderful loading came to a happy termination, Captain Nichols' third bet being thus lost. It remained now to introduce the projectile into the Columbiad 
and to place it on its soft bed of gun cotton. But before doing this, all those things necessary for the journey had to be carefully arranged in the projectile missile. These necessaries were numerous, and had our Dan been allowed to follow his own wishes, there would have been no space remaining for the travelers. It's impossible to conceive of half the things this charming Frenchman wished to convey to the moon, a veritable stock of useless trifles. But Barbicane intervened and refused admission to anything not absolutely needed. Several thermometers, barometers, and telescopes were packed in the instrument case. The travelers being desirous of examining the moon carefully during their voyage, in order to facilitate their studies, they took with them the Boer and Muller's excellent Mappa Selenographica, a masterpiece of patience and observation, which they hoped would enable them to identify those physical features in the moon with which they were acquainted. This map reproduced with scrupulous fidelity the smallest details of the lunar surface which faces the Earth. The mountains, valleys, craters, peaks, and ridges were all represented with their exact dimensions, relative positions, and names. From the mountains Durfel and Leibniz on the eastern side of the disk to the Mara Frigoris of the North Pole. They took also three rifles and three fowling pieces and a large quantity of ball, shot, and powder. We cannot tell whom we shall have to deal with, said Michel Ardan. Men or beasts may possibly object to our visit. It's only wise to take all precautions. These defensive weapons were accompanied by pickaxes, crowbars, saws, and other useful implements, not to mention clothing adapted to every temperature, from that of polar regions to that of the torrid zone. Ardan wished to convey a number of animals of different sorts, not indeed a pair of every known species, as he could not see the necessity of acclimatizing serpents, tigers, alligators, or any other noxious beasts in the moon. Nevertheless, he said to Barbicane, some valuable and useful beasts, bullocks, cows, horses, and donkeys, would bear the journey very well and would also be very useful to us. I dare say, my dear Ardan, replied the president, but our projectile vehicle is no Noah's Ark, from which it differs both in dimensions and object. Let us confine ourselves to possibilities. After a prolonged discussion, it was agreed that the travelers should restrict themselves to a sporting dog belonging to Nickel and to a large Newfoundland. Several packets of seeds were also included among the necessaries. Michel Ardan, indeed, was anxious to add some sacks full of earth to sow them in, as it was, he took a dozen shrubs carefully wrapped up in straw to plant in the moon. The important question of provisions still remained, it being necessary to provide against the possibility of their finding the moon absolutely barren. Barbicane managed so successfully that he supplied them with sufficient rations for a year. These consisted of preserved meats and vegetables, reduced by strong hydraulic pressure to the smallest possible dimensions. They were also supplied with brandy, and took water enough for two months, being confident, from astronomical observations, that there was no lack of water on the moon's surface. As to provisions, doubtless the inhabitants of the earth would find nourishment somewhere in the moon. Ardan never questioned this, 
Indeed, had he done so, he would never have undertaken the journey. Besides, he said one day to his friends, we shall not be completely abandoned by our terrestrial friends. They'll take care not to forget us. No, indeed, replied J.T. Maston. Nothing would be simpler, replied Arden. The Columbiad will be always there. Well, whenever the moon is in a favorable condition as to the zenith, if not to the perigee, that's to say about once a year, could you not send us a shell packed with provisions, which we might expect on some appointed day? Hurrah, hurrah, cried J.T. Maston. What an ingenious fellow. What a splendid idea. Indeed, my good friends, we shall not forget you. I shall reckon upon you. Then, you see, we shall receive news regularly from Earth, and we shall, indeed, be stupid if we hit upon no plan for communicating with our good friends here. These words inspired such confidence that Michel Ardan carried all the gun club with him in his enthusiasm. What he said seemed so simple and so easy, so sure of success, that none could be so sordidly attached to this earth as to hesitate to follow the three travelers on their lunar expedition. All being ready at last, it remained to place the projectile in the Columbiad, an operation abundantly accompanied by dangers and difficulties. The enormous shell was conveyed to the summit of Stones Hill. There, powerful cranes raised it, and held it suspended over the mouth of the cylinder. It was a fearful moment. What if the chains should break under its enormous weight? The sudden fall of such a body would inevitably cause the gun cotton to explode. Fortunately, this didn't happen, and some hours later the projectile vehicle descended gently into the heart of the cannon and rested on its couch of peroxyle, a veritable bed of explosive eiderdown. Its pressure had no result other than the more effectual ramming down of the charge in the Columbiad. I have lost, said the captain, who forthwith paid President Barbicane the sum of $3,000. Barbicane didn't wish to accept the money from one of his fellow travelers, but gave way at last before the determination of Nickel, who wished before leaving the earth to fulfill all his engagements. Now, said Michel Ardenne, I've only one thing more to wish for you, my brave captain. What is that? asked Nicol. It's that you may lose your two other bets. Then we shall be sure not to be stopped on our journey. Chapter 26 Fire The first of December had arrived, the fatal day. For if the projectile were not discharged that very night at 10 hours, 48 minutes, 40 seconds, post-meridian, more than 18 years must roll by before the moon would again present herself under the same conditions of zenith and perigee. The weather was magnificent. Despite the approach of winter, the sun shone brightly and bathed in its radiant light that earth which three of its denizens were about to abandon for a new world. How many persons lost their rest on the night which preceded this long-expected day? All hearts beat with disquietude save only the heart of Michel Ardan. That imperturbable personage came and went with his habitual, business-like air, while nothing whatever denoted that any unusual matter preoccupied his mind. After dawn, an innumerable multitude covered the prairie which extends as far as the eye can reach round Stones Hill. 
Every quarter of an hour, the railway brought fresh accessions and sightseers. And according to the statement of the Tampa Town Observer, not less than five millions of spectators thronged the soil of Florida. For a whole month previously, the mass of these persons had bivouacked round the enclosure and laid the foundations for a town which was afterward called Ardan's Town. The whole plain was covered with huts, cottages, and tents. Every nation under the sun was represented there, and every language might be heard spoken at the same time. It was a perfect babel reenacted. All the various classes of American society were mingled together in terms of absolute equality. Bankers, farmers, sailors, cotton planters, brokers, merchants, watermen, magistrates, elbowed each other in the most free and easy way. Louisiana Creoles fraternized with farmers from Indiana, Kentucky and Tennessee gentlemen, and haughty Virginians conversed with trappers and the half-savages of the lakes and butchers from Cincinnati. Broad-brimmed white hats and Panamas, blue cotton trousers, light-colored stockings, cambric frills were all here displayed, while upon shirt fronts, wristbands, and neckties, Upon every finger, even upon the very ears, they wore an assortment of rings, shirtpins, brooches, and trinkets, of which the value only equaled the execrable taste. Women, children, and servants, in equally expensive dress, surrounded their husbands, fathers, or masters, who resembled the patriarchs of tribes in the midst of their immense households. At mealtimes, all fell to work upon the dishes peculiar to the southern states and consumed with an appetite that threatened speedy exhaustion of the victualling powers of Florida. Fricasseed frogs, stuffed monkey, fish chowder, underdone possum, and raccoon steaks. And as for the liquors which accompanied this indigestible repast, the shouts, the vociferations that resounded through the bars and taverns decorated with glasses, tankards, and bottles of marvelous shape, mortars for pounding sugar, and bundles of straws. Mint julep, roars one of the barmen. Claret sangaree, shouts another. Cocktail, brandy smash, real mint julep in the new style. All these cries intermingled produced a bewildering and deafening hubbub. But on this day, 1st of December, such sounds were rare. No one thought of eating or drinking, and at 4 p.m. there were vast numbers of spectators who had not even taken their customary lunch. And a still more significant fact, even the national passion for play seemed quelled for the time under the general excitement of the hour. Up till nightfall, a dull, noiseless agitation such as precedes great catastrophes ran through the anxious multitude. An indescribable uneasiness pervaded all minds, an indefinable sensation which oppressed the heart. Everyone wished it was over. However, about seven o'clock the heavy silence was dissipated. The moon rose above the horizon. Millions of hurrahs hailed her appearance. She was punctual to the rendezvous, and shouts of welcome greeted her on all sides, as her pale beams shone gracefully in the clear heavens. At this moment, the three intrepid travelers appeared. This was the signal for renewed cries of still greater intensity. Instantly, the vast assemblage, as with one accord, struck up the national hymn of the United States, and Yankee Doodle 
sung by five million of hardy throats, rose like a roaring tempest to the farthest limits of the atmosphere. Then a profound silence reigned throughout the crowd. The Frenchman and the two Americans had by this time entered the enclosure reserved in the center of the multitude. They were accompanied by the members of the gun club and by deputations sent from all the European observatories. Barbicane, cool and collected, was giving his final directions. Nickel, with compressed lips, his arms crossed behind his back, walked with a firm and measured step. Michel Ardan, always easy, dressed in thorough traveler's costume, leathern gaiters on his legs, pouch by his side, in loose velvet suit, cigar in mouth, was full of inexhaustible gaiety, laughing, joking, playing pranks with J.T. Maston. In one word, he was the thorough Frenchman, and worse, a Parisian, to the last moment. Ten o'clock struck. The moment had arrived for taking their places in the projectile. The necessary operations for the descent and the subsequent removal of the cranes and scaffolding that inclined over the mouth of the Columbiad required a certain period of time. Barbicane had regulated his chronometer to the tenth part of a second by that of Murchison, the engineer, who was charged with the duty of firing the gun by means of an electric spark. Thus the travelers enclosed within the projectile were enabled to follow with their eyes the impassive needle which marked the precise moment of their departure. The moment had arrived for saying goodbye. The scene was a touching one. Despite his feverish gaiety, even Michel Ardan was touched. J.T. Maston had found in his own dry eyes one ancient tear, which he had doubtless reserved for the occasion. He dropped it on the forehead of his dear president. Can I not go, he said. There's still time. Impossible, old fellow, replied Barbicane. A few moments later, the three fellow travelers had ensconced themselves in the projectile and screwed down the plate which covered the entrance aperture. The mouth of the Columbiad, now completely disencumbered, was open entirely to the sky. The moon advanced upward in a heaven of the purest clearness, outshining in her passage the twinkling light of the stars. She passed over the constellation of the Twins and was now nearing the halfway point between the horizon and the zenith. A terrible silence weighed upon the entire scene, not a breath of wind upon the earth, not a sound of breathing from the countless chests of the spectators. Their hearts seemed afraid to beat. All eyes were fixed upon the yawning mouth of the Columbiad. Murchison followed with his eye the hand of his chronometer. It wanted scarce forty seconds to the moment of departure, but each second seemed to last an age. At the twentieth there was a general shudder, as it occurred to the minds of that vast assemblage that the bold travelers shut up within the projectile were also counting those terrible seconds. Some few cries here and there escaped the crowd. Thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty, fire! Instantly, Murchison pressed with his finger the key of the electric battery, restored the current of the fluid and discharged the spark into the breach of the Columbiad. An appalling, unearthly report followed instantly, such as can be compared to nothing whatever known, 
not even to the roar of thunder or the blast of volcanic explosions. No words can convey the slightest idea of the terrific sound. An immense spout of fire shot up from the bowels of the earth as from a crater. The earth heaved up, and with great difficulty some few spectators obtained a momentary glimpse of the projectile victoriously cleaving the air in the midst of the fiery vapors. Chapter 27 Foul Weather At the moment when that pyramid of fire rose to a prodigious height into the air, the glare of flame lit up the whole of Florida, and for a moment day superseded night over a considerable extent of the country. This immense canopy of fire was perceived at a distance of 100 miles out at sea, and more than one ship's captain enter in his log the appearance of this gigantic meteor. The discharge of the Columbiad was accompanied by a perfect earthquake. Florida was shaken to its very depths. The gases of the powder, expanded by heat, forced back the atmospheric strata with tremendous violence, and this artificial hurricane rushed like a waterspout through the air. Not a single spectator remained on his feet. Men, women, children, all lay prostrate like ears of corn under a tempest. There ensued a terrible tumult. A large number of persons were seriously injured. J.T. Maston, who, despite all dictates of prudence, had kept in advance of the mass, was pitched back 120 feet, shooting like a projectile over the heads of his fellow citizens. 300,000 persons remained deaf for a time, and as though struck stupefied. As soon as the first effects were over, the injured, the deaf, and lastly the crowd in general, woke up with frenzied cries. Hurrah for Ardan! Hurrah for Barbicane! Hurrah for Nickel! rose to the skies. Thousands of purses, noses in air, armed with telescopes and race glasses, were questioning space, forgetting all contusions and emotions in the one idea of watching for the projectile. They looked in vain. It was no longer to be seen, and they were obliged to wait for telegrams from Long's Peak. The director of the Cambridge Observatory was at his post on the Rocky Mountains, and to him, as a skillful and persevering astronomer, all observations had been confided. But an unforeseen phenomenon came in to subject the public impatience to a severe trial. The weather, hitherto so fine, suddenly changed. The sky became heavy with clouds. It could not have been otherwise after the terrible derangement of the atmospheric strata and the dispersion of the enormous quantity of vapor arising from the combustion of 200,000 pounds of peroxyl. On the morrow, the horizon was covered with clouds, a thick and impenetrable curtain between earth and sky, which unhappily extended as far as the Rocky Mountains. It was a fatality. But since man had chosen so to disturb the atmosphere, he was bound to accept the consequences of his experiment. Supposing now that the experiment had succeeded, the travelers, having started on the 1st of December at 10 hours, 46 minutes, 40 seconds, post-meridian, were due on the 4th at 0 hours, post-meridian, at their destination, so that up to that time it would have been very difficult after all to have observed, under such conditions, a body so small as the shell. Therefore they waited with what patience they might. From the 4th to the 6th of December inclusive, the weather remaining much the same in America, 
the great European instruments of Herschel, Rossi, and Foucault were constantly directed toward the moon, for the weather was then magnificent. But the comparative weakness of their glasses prevented any trustworthy observations being made. On the 7th, the sky seemed to lighten. They were in hopes now, but their hope was of but short duration, and at night, again, thick clouds hid the starry vault from all eyes. Matters were now becoming serious, when on the ninth the sun reappeared for an instant as if for the purpose of teasing the Americans. It was received with hisses, and wounded, no doubt, by such a reception, showed itself very sparing of its rays. On the tenth, no change. J.T. Maston went nearly mad, and great fears were entertained regarding the brain of this worthy individual, which had hitherto been so well preserved within his good aperture cranium. But on the eleventh, one of those inexplicable tempests peculiar to those intertropical regions was let loose in the atmosphere. A terrific east wind swept away the groups of clouds which had been so long gathering, and at night the semi-disk of the orb of night rode majestically amid the soft constellations of the sky. Chapter 28. A New Star That very night, the startling news so impatiently awaited burst like a thunderbolt over the United States of the Union, and thence, darting across the ocean, ran through all the telegraphic wires of the globe. The projectile had been detected thanks to the gigantic reflector of Long's Peak, Here's the note received by the director of the Observatory of Cambridge. It contains the scientific conclusion regarding this great experiment of the gun club. Long's Peak, December 12th. To the officers of the Observatory of Cambridge. The projectile discharged by the Columbiad at Stones Hill has been detected by Messrs. Belfast and J.T. Maston, 12th of December at 8.47 p.m., the moon having entered her last quarter. This projectile has not arrived at its destination. It has passed by the side, but sufficiently near to be retained by the lunar attraction. The rectilinear movement has thus become changed into a circular motion of extreme velocity, and it is now pursuing an elliptical orbit round the moon, of which it has become a true satellite. The elements of this new star we have as yet been unable to determine we do not yet know the velocity of its passage. The distance which separates it from the surface of the moon may be estimated at about 2,833 miles. However, two hypotheses come here into our consideration. 1. Either the attraction of the moon will end by drawing them into itself, and the travelers will attain their destination. Or, 2. The projectile, following an immutable law, will continue to gravitate round the moon till the end of time. At some future time, our observations will be able to determine this point, but till then, the experiment of the gun club can have no other result than to have provided our solar system with a new star. J. Belfast To how many questions did this unexpected denouement give rise? What mysterious results was the future reserving for the investigation of science? At all events, the names of Nicol, Barbicane, and Michel Ardan were certain to be immortalized in the annals of astronomy. When the dispatch from Long's Peak had once become known, there was but one universal feeling of surprise and alarm. 
Was it possible to go to the aid of these bold travelers? No, for they had placed themselves beyond the pale of humanity by crossing the limits imposed by the Creator on his earthly creatures. They had air enough for two months. They had victuals enough for twelve. But after that, there was only one man who would not admit that the situation was desperate. He alone had confidence. And that was their devoted friend, J.T. Maston. Besides, he never let them get out of sight. His home was henceforth the post at Long's Peak, his horizon the mirror of that immense reflector. As soon as the moon rose above the horizon, he immediately caught her in the field of the telescope. He never let her go for an instant out of his sight and followed her assiduously in her course through the stellar spaces. He watched with untiring patience the passage of the projectile across her silvery disk, and really the worthy man remained in perpetual communication with his three friends, whom he did not despair of seeing again some day. Those three men, he said, have carried into space all the resources of art, science, and industry. With that, one can do anything, and you'll see that some day they'll come out all right.